The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola. And today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Alexis P. Morgan. Alexis is an artist, activist, and practicing witch, among many other things. In this episode, Alexis generously shares so many resources. But don't worry, just relax and listen, because you'll find all the links to every book, every person that she recommends in the show notes on my website. I spoke with Alexis online. At the time, she was living in Huntsville, Alabama. So Alexis, what identities do you lead with? Leader, warrior, sister, and friend, most definitely. And in that order? And in that order. That's so That's so great. I love that. So I'm really excited to have you on the show because you have other identities as well that um, I've been able to learn about kind of from afar on Facebook. I I never used to be one of those people who would be friends with people I didn't really know, but then um, we became friends on Facebook because I'd been sort of stalking you for a little while and somehow that happened that I was like, no, I I want more of this person in my feed in a way that I could actually respond and not seem like a stalker, even though that's what (laughs) was factually happening. I I thought I'd shift that energy a little bit. Um, And so I'm very interested in your witchcraft practice, but also as it relates to your political life, your personal life, you know, as as a black witch in Alabama, I would imagine you're going to have a different experience, say, from my neighbors who are settler witches in Victoria, BC, you know, and so what I know about witches really, I realize happens in a certain context and container. And I would imagine it must be different um, where you are in a different context. There's different influences. So how did you discover witchcraft? What kind of witchcraft are you into? And and how did it become a practice for you? How did you go from curious observer to initiate to adept? Yeah. So it's actually kind of a a teeny tiny bit of a winding and mildly convoluted story. Um, When I was little, so I have, uh, for those of you who who don't know me personally, I'm adopted. I have same-sex parents, which was really unusual for the time because I was born in the Deep South. I was actually born in Tennessee. Um, And one side of my family is... Russian and Polish Jews, and the other is um, a a mix of Episcopalian, my grandmother was Episcopalian, um, and Roman Catholic. So I was raised um, Roman Catholic, but I never really kind of attached to religion or spirituality in in a personal practice sort of way. I always just kind of side-eyed it and like tilted my head. Um, But I've always been really interested in mythology and spirituality and magic and kind of sci-fi things. Um, And when I was 13, I was at the library with my mother to get my very first library card on my own. And I wandered off into into the adult kind of like book section because I was looking for a copy of Bullfinch's Mythology because I had checked it out and I had read it before. Um, and while I was walking down this particular aisle, I swear to you, I, I turned my back and I was looking through the shelves for this book. And all of a sudden I feel a book hit me on the back of my head and I turned around and I was just like, the fuck was that? Uh, I don't know if I can swear or not. But Sometimes it gets dirty around here. So go ahead. Yeah. Um, but I was just like, the fuck was that? And I turn around and there's this book on the floor and it's Dane McCoy's, if you want to be a witch, which had literally, I think it had literally just come out and I just stopped and I was just like, 
what's this? And I got this book and obviously like the librarians were side-eyeing me because I had like four books on witchcraft and they were just like, what are you doing? Like, okay. Um, And I just devoured these books on, um, you know, witchcraft and Wicca. And and I identified with it, not in like a fully like, definitely had my Wiccan like teenager phase, but um, it sparked something off in me. However, in high school, I, I kind of, I kind of got tired of sort of like the, the anti-Christian crusading that you sometimes see in certain corners of Wiccan communities. Um, and I wandered away from my spirituality and more or less became agnostic, like atheistic kind of open-minded person. But fast forward to 2011, um, my mother, Charlotte, one of my mothers, um, passed away um, after a, a year, a year after she had a stroke while I was away at school. Um, and I woke up about, I don't know, and the timeline got a little bit fuzzy because I was obviously grieving. But shortly thereafter, I woke up one morning and I had like this irrepressible, irrepressible urge to get a tarot deck just like out of the blue. <laughs> um, so I ordered two um, and I started reading for other people immediately. And that kind of like snowballed down a hill. And then I started sensing dead people again. And yeah. And then fast forward a, a little bit more. I was living in rural Tennessee with my then aunt, who is super evangelical and very much conservative, like Fox News going 24-7 in the house. <laughs> um, and I was in deep meditation. I didn't know what to call it. I don't, I'm not really a fan of like sh- shamanism or neo-shamanism. I don't like those terms. Um, but I was in a really deep sort of trans world sort of scenario. Um, and then all of a sudden, like I had God showing up and it started with Ir, who is the Norse God of healing. And she's like the battlefield surgeon. And so that's kind of what kicked it off. I mean, there were various points that kind of stitched together. So there's no like one focal point. Um, but it's been going on for several years now. And over the last like five, six years, um, I've grown not only increasingly spiritual and hands-on with my spiritual practice, but as a consequence, um, it, it occurred to me a couple of weeks ago that because of my spirituality, I became even more politically radical than I was before, um, you know, I developed a spiritual life, which is kind of interesting. I've always been interested in politics, but that's just kind of kind of how that happened. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk a bit more about that? Because I, I, I it's interesting we're having a parallel experience here, um, which makes sense because we're, you know, we're speaking in the last days of 2016 and everybody's looking around, you know, in, in a bit of shell shock. But I've been wondering that myself. Is is radicalism or um, becoming politicized the natural next step? for a person who's been deeply involved in spirituality or, or is there a certain archetype that comes alive and that's when we do it? Like, I, I'd love to hear more about um, the thought you just shared about how politics yeah. came in. Yeah. So for me, um, I, so to, to kind of tie this into, to where I left off, um, I became a pan-Germanic heathen. Um, I had a full trua, which is like God friendship, I guess is the, the easiest way to translate that. Um, with Freya, that was confirmed. I actually have a tattoo on my chest. A lot of people don't know that the tattoo on my chest is religious. Um, and so is the one on my back. Um, and I got them both at the same time and I was sleeping on the floor with no mattress, which made that even more <laughs> was of an ordeal. I colored last night, and, and so I only, I'm like, oh my god, how'd you do that? I have a super cushy bed, and wow. Yeah. Uh, before you say that, can you say it again? You said um, pan-Germanic heathen, 
which yes. I think could use a little bit more explanation. And also what yes. you said after that, you had a full throughout like a whole career, Okay. Right? So, yes. So it's kind of funny because when I first sort of came across pagan and like neo-pagan paths, um, as Asutru, or depending on how you say it, um, Asuturar, which is Northern paganism. So Odin, Freya, Thor, those types of deities, um, developed a reputation for being kind of a front and a cover for white nationalists and white supremacists. Um, so obviously me being this multiracial black woman was just like, I don't want to mess with that. No, thank you. Um, I think I'll pass. (laughs) So, (laughs) so like when these, so when Ir, who I didn't know was a Norse goddess at the time, um, started showing up in my visions, it was rather like uncomfortable because I was just like, nah, I'm good. (laughs) Adios. Um, so I went through about three months where I was regularly, I don't want to say praying to, but sort of meditating on um, the archetypes of these various deities. And I picked up a book on Asia True in Northern Paganism. And this is kind of an umbrella term because not all Scandinavian and Germanic tribes like had the same exact practices. And we don't have like a lot of records really of specific practices. We have a lot of like cultural records, like the Eddas and the sagas, especially Icelandic um, sagas that inform a lot of Northern pagan practices. Mm -hmm. So I call myself a pan-Germanic heathen because I draw from this, I draw a lot from this Icelandic sources, but I also draw from just general um, Scandinavian and Germanic tribes, as well as some Saxon influence um, and and some Baltic practices too. And so so that I include the Finnish, like the Cavella and stuff. Yes, like yeah. So it's just kind of like a catch-all um, for this uh, pre-Christian um, sort of conceptualization of deity. I guess is the best way to put it. Beautiful. Um, and I'm also not a traditionalist. Well, I am, but I'm. I am, but I'm not really. There are certain aspects of my practice that are very traditional um, and other parts not so much. Um, But after about three months of sort of meditating on these deital influences that were coming up and reading and researching, um, I decided to initiate a a full Trua ritual, which is to find my God friend. Um, And a lot of people get this confused with sort of choosing a patron deity. Um, in Northern traditions of Northern pagan traditions, you do not choose your, your God, your God chooses you. Um, and there's no guarantee that, that you will get a response. Um, and you basically what this ritual is, is that you, you world walk, which you ascend through Yggdrasil, the world tree. Um, and you ask for, for signs, um, of who your deity is. And I had always felt a kinship with Freya, but I wasn't betting or hoping that Freya would show up. Um, even though it was kind of obvious by this point. Um, and I received two signs, one of, one of which was spiritual. Um, but I had received another one, but the very last sign was that actually that day after I did my ritual. And I walked out the front door and right in front of me, I swear to God, was this massive hawk just like Mm -hmm. chilling on the fence in front of our house. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, well, that's it. (laughs) Sign number three. Here we go. Um, So so that's kind of how that happened. Um, And for me, it's really, it's really kind of weird sometimes being, as I said, like a black multiracial woman and like the whitest of the white, like, <laughs> like I could not have gone any like hardcore, like Caucasian, like yeah. I tried. It's true. And yeah. so how do you though, but, and as you said, that becomes um, like a dog whistle almost for yeah. And so that in itself is a battle for good and evil, really, you know, because anything can be distorted, right? I mean, I'm having a similar thing with stoicism right now where it's like, oh, 
fucking hell, all these, you know, men's rights <laughs> activists and yeah. all right who love the Stoics, which and, and it's the antithesis of what the Stoics were actually about. So yeah. so how does that then influence or how what comes first, the politics or the spirituality in terms of how they work together? I mean, honestly, for me, it's both because one of the things that has always spoken to me about uh, heathenism um, and just sort of like the general code of conduct um, is that one's honor and one's integrity is kind of central to, uh, you know, one's faith and one's um, good works in the eyes of the gods. And it's not in the Christian sense, because there's a lot of like moralism and sort of judgment of character kind of wrapped up in sin and like all this kind of messiness. Um, but for me, walking the path of the warrior, the spiritual path of the warrior, which is much more dimensional than people think it is, um, you know, really sort of asked me, what am I willing to fight for? What do I fight for? And for me, that answer has always been justice. My The three values that I live by that I would die for that guide my life and every single thing that I do are truth, justice, and liberation. Mm. And it guides, it guides my writing. It guides my career choices. It guides my, my financial, what I've where I want to put my resources, it guides everything, and, it, and including my spiritual life. And as a result of sort of being asked to reflect on those things, especially in the spiritual context, um, it sort of naturally led to, if I am truly walking in in the light and the lessons of my gods, and and you know, mother universe herself, then I can't be shy or pussyfoot around politics. Politics is life. Politics is spiritual. If you exist, you are political. Hate to break it to you libertarians. Like, right. <laughs> like I, I get really frustrated with people who are like, oh, I'm just not into politics and I'm very apolitical. Because nine out of 10 times, it's usually white folks, which I'm just like, miss me with your nonsense like it really is like it's a signal of such extreme privilege and having been a person who for most of my life was like I made political I can say it's because I had a fear of being ignorant I had a fear yeah. I, I, I you know I it, because I was ignorant it was a very valid fear it was well yeah. and so it, you know ignorance and supremacy go right hand in hand so once I realized oh shit look what I'm perpetuating. Like when yeah. I say that I'm an idiot because it means that I, ha I, I have the, uh, the, this wealth of privilege that enables me to be insulated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I could see how that would rub you the wrong way. As yeah. A multiracial black woman. Is, well, know? because like my whole existence is politicized. Like I cannot help but be keenly aware of the political consequences of my breath and my thoughts. But beyond that, like spirituality, stripping away like the the dogmatic hierarchies of like religion and like some of the problematic fuckery that comes in through you know more organized traditions. Um, spirituality itself is a quest for knowledge of the universe, of one another, of oneself, and politics requires that. Theoretically, my country has kind of proven us otherwise. <laughs> And what I'm about to say here, but politics in theory, when it works correctly, <laughs> requires you to engage in active thought and active contemplation and active introspection about what matters to you and what you feel your society should look like. And that takes a lot out of people that like mm -hmm. organizing a community and organizing, you know, your nation is hard work mm -hmm. and a lot I feel like a lot of people don't vote and they don't get politically involved because it's hard work and it challenges them mm -hmm. and because they don't like thinking about you know what matters to them like it's very like I feel like a lot of us have sort of been conditioned by this like curiosical like 
capitalist machine to just sort of live in our own minds and not really pay too much attention beyond like immediate family and friends. Like we don't necessarily think to scale. But do you also think, scale is the perfect word for what I'm thinking now, because I'm also wondering though, if in the culture that we live in, being capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, et cetera, we've been sort of sold the myth of the empowered individual. And then when you try to organize, I mean, fuck, I know this from Quaker meetings, I'm Quaker. And so trying to come to unity in a meeting of freaking like loving ever patient Quakers is freaking impossible, which is why lots of times nothing gets done because we go, okay, the sense of the meeting is we don't have unity. So we're just going to lay that down. But yeah. in, you know, when we're talking about it, the order of scale of nationhood, we can't just lay down certain issues because we can't come to unity. And so we realize that there's all these areas in which we have so we, we we have so little actual direct control and that's sort of countervailing to the wisdom that we've been taught that we are empowered individuals who you know yeah. have great influence over our own fates well it's interesting because my faith sort of my my personal expression of my faith really kind of addresses this and one of the things about about heathenism generally speaking, regardless of the tradition that you look at, is that it's very clan focused. It's about family and it's about lineage. And this is another reason why I um, have an interest in the African traditional diaspora traditions. So voodoo, Ifa, Lukumi, Santaria, which is kind of like an Afro-Caribbean blend, but who cares, Um, (laughs) is that they're all very focused on lineage. And in heathenism, um, you have two concepts. You have you have weird and you have orlog. And I'm probably going to get these swaps, so forgive me if I get them turned around. Um, but weird is kind of like this general concept of faith, like this really broad. Wait, and eh, never mind. Techn- like I'm going to get to technical t- details confused. I apologize to everybody in advance. Mm-hmm. I believe weird is personal faith. Um, and Orolog is sort of how that is woven together in the, the, the general concept of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and exploring that notion and seeing that everybody's individual thread is part of a bigger fabric mm-hmm. really kind of forces you to think about how your actions impact other people. Mm-hmm. And like one of my biggest issues with contemporary incarnations of Christianity in particular is that there's such a strong, like we see a lot of evangelical communities talking about community and talking about our neighbors. But when you look at kind of like the core theology of a lot of contemporary incarnations of Christianity, your relationship with, with God and Jesus as an individual person tends to tip the scale tend to be tipped towards that rather than tipped towards good works for your community. So in a lot of heathen spaces, um, even if you don't have like a strong faith in the gods, like if you adhere to the principle, like the kind of core values and principles, those good works tip out and you're still considered like a moral and upright person. Mm -hmm. So that for me was very radical. And I feel like, especially here in America, where we've kind of developed this odd fascination with sort of, we lean more into individualism than we do into community, which has its up and its downsides. I feel like America is like one extreme and then like Japan is like the other end of the spectrum. (laughs) Yes. Like, and everybody's just kind of like scattered in between. (laughs) Like America is such like an individualistic society and that's never really resonated with me. And, and maybe that's also because of the the lineage that I come from too. Um, of having sort of like a firsthand experience of what it's like to be on the receiving end of not having family and not having um, communal support and having interests in, you know, things like adoption and and foster care because my brother came out of foster care and I'm interested um, in in the experiences of, of foster children um, and seeing what that that impact is like, that sort of disconnection from community. Um, so it all kind of like folds in politically. I didn't, sorry, didn't. No, that's okay. I wanted to uh, actually just, um, 
pick up on that thread because I've been sitting thinking for a little bit now. You talked about adoption and you've talked about lineage. So there's, there's, well, there's actually, I'm going to lay it out and let, and let you go. There's two things that I'm curious about. Um, so you're talking about lineage and um, traditions that are not necessarily your own. You've had, you know, it's come to you. So how do you walk the spiritual path um, aware of cultural appropriation? How do you also walk the path when your lineage in some ways is mysterious? because you've been adopted or because, you know, or, or even as a, as a multiracial black woman, I would imagine that a lot of your lineage has either been um, killed off or mm. displaced radically or so in your spiritual life, there's, there's going to be some things that come to you that you're like, Oh, this, this, you know, I'm feeling this, but I, I, I couldn't research that and say, and so then the cultural appropriation question might come up for you. So, yeah. you know, you kind of, I think you get what I'm getting at here. There's, yeah. there's a lot in there between lineage and, that is, um, that, that you can trace and lineage you can't. And so then the appropriation question comes up. How have you dealt with that? Yeah. So, so I feel like the dynamics are a little bit different in my case because I am a minority marginalized person. Um, but I'll, I'll start with sort of heathenism first. Um, for me, that's never really come up because most of my practices are not living, quote unquote, living traditions. Like there are not nations and large groups of people who are organized around them. Um, you know, academically speaking, just from an academic perspective, we can argue that that faith system is quote unquote dead. It's not dead to me, but on a general scale, it's, you know, not actively being practiced very widely. And it also doesn't belong to a, a marginalized or um, oppressed group. Mm-hmm. So if so you I like, just want to say that two, like, let's restate that two super important points is like, number one, <laughs> it's not a living faith that people are organizing and living and trying, you know, fighting to um, hold on to and preserve yes. and fighting for survival. And the second one is you're not a member of a dominant group that is going in and um, using just it to yeah. taking this for the yeah. girls. Exactly. So I just wanted to like pause because yeah. <laughs> it's a big conversation in my community, right? Yeah. You know, especially a lot of settler folks, white folks, not understanding how do we, what is appropriation, what's appropriate of a not. Yeah. So thank you for letting me interrupt. Carry on. Yeah. So, and then the second example would be uh, the African diaspora traditional religions. So I actually want to talk about this because um, these types of traditions and hoodoo, which is not a religion, but it's a magical system that's native to a black Southern American experience itself. Um, You know, there's been a resurgence in a lot of pagan communities and an interest in these faiths. And so this is going to be a little bit of like a cultural lesson. So I'm going to put on my professor hat. Um, So I feel like a huge part of this is because, first of all, there's sort of like an embedded anti-blackness in a number of Western cultures. So like, (laughs) (laughs) surprise. Um, (laughs) Like, I mean, like, if you look at like coverage of like Haiti and like the and how Haiti is often treated, especially in certain conservative and evangelical circles, when they talk about the practice of voodoo, um, it's usually it's it's very anti-black caricature. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. But setting that aside, I want to slow that. Sorry, I keep interrupting you, but it's because it's so good. <laughs> when you're saying, I, 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 this is a really important teaching piece. When you're saying anti-black, like so, for instance, I'm I'm following one of the the Haiti sort of on the ground organizations. It's local, and they've done a great job of pointing out what is anti-black about the portrayal. So, like, you, you know, this is a great example of mm-hmm. of you know. Um, they're they're like uneducated disorganized you know primitive yeah they're yeah primitive exactly it's it's dark it's scary there's a lot of blood you know yeah. like it's there's, just it's, it's fear plays on fear yeah 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 there's yeah. fear mongering and and that was actually one of the things that I wanted to get into with this is yeah. that a lot of the African diaspora traditions, the ATRs, which is a shorthanded way of saying it, um, are very private and secretive. 
Um, initiations, a lot of rituals are kept private and secret from non-initiated persons. And part of the reason why that is, outside of just that being a regular hallmark of spiritual tradition, um, is that these practices were practiced by enslaved people. Like, they had to keep them secret. You couldn't be out in the open with these practices lest you be killed by you know your your owner your your master whatever mm. um so a lot of these traditions were kept private in the interest of protecting the community mm. um and protecting the people who practice it and that's especially the case with voodoo mm. um and one of the things that's interesting in the legacy of sort of voodoo but not voodoo voodoo pardon voodoo yeah, so voodoo is, is different American. Yes. You is from Haiti. Yeah. Well, it's actually, it's, it's from Benin, um, but it's, uh, you know, practiced in, in Haiti specifically uh, quite strongly. Um, And Beninian and like Haiti, Haitian incarnations of voodoo are very different. And then there's like an Americanized, like Mm. washy version that comes out of New Orleans. But anyways. Okay. Thank you. um, but with with Haiti in particular, um, Haiti was the first uh, independent nation of, of black persons, free nation um, in in the New World. And at the the start of the Haitian sort of like revolt, when they when they killed all the white people on the island and burned the the plantations to the ground, um, there was uh, oh my goodness, I know the name. There's a formal name for it, but they did a ceremony. Um, to Israeli Dantor, I believe, um, you know, and they invoked her spirit and then they overthrew the island. Mm. Um, so there's always sort of been like this, this anti-Black, very uh, fear-mongering around voodoo practices. And I think mm. it's, it's sort of like the antagonism politically between, uh, you know, Black and Brown identity and sort of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, but... <laughs> I, I had a point. Give me a second. I, I, you know what? I don't even need it. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yes. Now I remember. So, like, with the ATRs, for me, I, I still think it's possible for me um, as a as a multiracial Black woman to still appropriate African spirituality because I am not African. I was not born in an African nation. Mm-hmm. I was not raised in an Afro-Caribbean community here in the States. It's still possible for me as a Black American to appropriate what is still a living mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I get really frustrated with, especially with white pagans in particular, when it comes to this topic is that these are still living traditions. Hoodoo, conjure, still a living tradition, mm-hmm. magically speaking. Ifa, Lukumi, Santaria, these are living traditions. You cannot just walk in the door and be like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. That's not mm-hmm. how that works. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about my relationship with the Orisha, I have to be very careful because I don't want to misrepresent my practice how I engage my practice um, and who I am as a practitioner, because I am not a Babalao, which, or, you know, I am not, you know, if Inyansa, like I'm not. Um, I do have a relationship with the Orisha from a magical perspective and from which a is respect. A, that's West African, is it? Uh, yes. So um, Ifa, um, it, there are obviously like some idiosyncrasies that are unique to each tradition, but um, Ifa is a monotheist religion, which is another thing that irritates me because a lot of white pagans are just like, oh, these are gods. And I'm just like, they're not gods. They're demigods. They're like saints. Mm. Um, so a lot of the African traditional religions are actually monotheist. They believe in like a supreme creator spirit um, and the Loa um, and the Orisha are emanations of that. That similar to say, like Saint Francis of Assisi is not a god. Yes, <laughs> and, and not all of the Orisha were originally divine either. Um, some of them are humans who became divine. That's very complicated. Mm. It depends on where you are. Mm. Long story short, um, it's still possible for me to appropriate as a black person mm. because I'm not initiated, mm. and so for me. 
Um, I try to, um, I try to make myself accessible because a lot of my white friends don't know anybody who practice um, these particular types of, of faith. Um, but I also try not to speak with too much authority because I am not trained. I'm not initiated. I've not been in a community. Um, and I, and I have to be very sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. Um, because mm -hmm. I, I know what I know, but I also don't know what I don't know. Right. So you mentioned the word authority. Mm -hmm. it, for somebody who's curious about witchcraft, let's say, you mentioned mm -hmm. those books in the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. There'll be links on uh, in the show notes. But yeah. who would you say today are your trusted sources? Or, you know, maybe there's um, icons or teachers that somebody who would be curious about entering into witchcraft to might look to. Totally. So from a tradition, quote unquote, traditional witchcraft perspective, um, Sarah Ann Lawless is one of my favorite people. Um, she, she, she's an amazing herbalist. I, I don't have a green thumb. I kill plants. So like, I just kind of admire from a distance. I'm just like, that's awesome. But her blog is just filled with really great insights um, and inspiration. Um, Paul Hewson, who wrote, uh, I believe, Mastering Witchcraft, if you can kind of get over, like, the odd squixy feelings, like, you may have, like, uh, about Judeo-Christian language, um, his, so, it's funny, because his book actually opens with saying the Lord's Prayer backwards to sort of bash <laughs> off the chains of Abrahamic religion, and that usually will either invigorate you or scare the shit out of you. <laughs> um, but that's always, always has been a classic, especially in the magical spaces that I'm in. Um, another person just kind of like in this vein of, of general pagany witchcraft, um, Teethorn Coil, always a wonderful voice. Evolutionary Witchcraft is an amazing book. Um, you know, and Lasara Firefox Allen, I just picked up her book, Jailbreaking the Goddess. And I'm curious about that one. Is it good? Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's, I consider it a nice counterbalance to Z Budapest, who is very much second wave feminist and wholesale problematic. Like, I've just kind of, like, pushed everything that has Z's name on it to, like, the side because she's very transphobic. And I'm just like, nah, I'm not about this life. No, I'm mm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, but I, I've heard that, um, Alan's book moves away from sort of a reproductive model of yes. womanhood in the term, like, you know, your maiden, your, you know, uh, mother, mother and crone. And yeah. so he is like, no, this is about like, you know, beginnings, you know, creation, yeah. growth, sustenance. And she's got like a fivefold model or something. Yes. Like so I feel like that's pretty liberating. Not whether no matter where you identify on the gender spectrum, mm -hmm. I just feel like that is, that's just more contemporary and, and accessible. Resonant. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because she, I was actually listening to her podcast interview with Gordon White the other day. Mm -hmm. And just from like a, a practical perspective, um, I, I would like to say here that for me, magic is like the core of my witchcrafty kind of practice. I don't necessarily, I call myself a witch because it's like easy, accessible language for people, but I'd really kind of characterize myself as more of a sorceress mm. like, because my magic is very practical mm -hmm. um, and it's very operative. Um, and then my, my spiritual practice and my religious practice is very much like over in its own corner. Mm. Um, but Gordon is actually one of my favorite people. I don't always agree with him. Sometimes I vigorously disagree with him, especially Brexit is like a really great example, although I don't really get to have a say because he's British and I'm not. Oh, well. <laughs> um, but like his book, The Chaos Protocols, um, is really handy. A little bit sour in the beginning. <laughs> It'll depress you a little bit. Mm. Um, but his books have been incredible. Starships is really wonderful. It's uh, Starships, The Prehistory of the Spirits. is a really great read um, and sort of dives into um, spiritism and animism, mm. um, you know, in, in a spiritual context. So anybody who's interested in witchcraft, definitely snap you up a copy of that book. Nice. 
Um, but a couple other people too. I have a really long list. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Jason Miller, um, in Amanda, which is a mouthful. Um, he wrote a book called the Sorcerer's Secrets. And that was the first serious book on magic that I've, that I ever picked up, um, as a grown adult woman. And I love Jason because he's very practical and he knows his stuff. And it's funny because at the time when I first came across Jason, he was actually a practicing Tibetan Buddhist. And it's, it's kind of interesting because he talks a lot about cultural appropriation in, in his, pers- his work and his perspective. Um, and given that he's a white dude from Jersey who used to be a Tibetan Buddhist, um, you know, he, he definitely has some interesting thoughts and his, his, his wife, um, is, is African American. So, you know, there's definitely a number of intersections there, but now he's a Christian. So, you know, interesting journeys all around. Wow. Um, Wow. I have to get a couple of these people on the show. Um, yeah, they're, they're really interesting. Um, so Jason's work for me from a hands-on perspective, because it forces me to think practically, which is something I feel like a lot of contemporary schools of spiritual thought, like new agey kind of thoughts. It's almost like love and light and fairy dust and let us float off on a cloud of nothing that can be tied down to earth. And we don't need that right now. Mm. Especially if you live in the United States with the political climate as it is. I mean, just generally, like with the planet on fire. Um, You know, like we don't need more of that. So I appreciate that kind of practical tone. And then last but not least, um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Brie Saucy, Brianna Saucy. She's amazing. Um, But last but not least is Josephine McCarthy. And Josephine. Um, I owe a lot to Josephine, actually. Um, she is a magician. She's been a practicing magician for, oh my goodness, a really long and really long time. Um, but her book, Magical Knowledge, was the second book, the second series book on magic that I ever picked up. And I held on to that book for, oh my goodness, a good six months before I actually read it. And Josephine and her approach to spirituality, especially like within an, a, like an occult context, um, sort of takes a major departure from what I call white guy dick waving. Is- <laughs> <laughs> hey, I know some magical spirit that do that. <laughs> I mean, like, that is literally Western occultism. Like, if you just, like, read through any books about occult history, to swap Western occultism with white guy dick waving, and it just works out. Um, and Josephine was really radical for me because she considers the path of the magician to be one of service um, and service to balance, um, both of the universe and in one's community, and working with the balance of the universe rather than trying to, to, um, control it. And that was really revolutionary for me. And I'm sure some of the people in your audience already know this, especially if they're familiar with sort of like a a cult operative magic kind of spaces. Um, but women are generally lacking women and non-binary people. Like they're, they're pretty (laughs) much non-existent. And like the few women that you find like scattered across like Dionne Fortune and H.P. Pulvasky, like they're, they, they were racist and somewhat misogynist, like definitely misogynistic. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's not really like much to go on. It's all like guy dick waving. Mm -hmm. Um, so Josephine was really radical for me to come across her and her work. And she um, started, uh, I believe, I want to say two or three years ago, the Coria, which is the, the magical order that I'm studying and working my, my way through. Like, technically, an order membership is secret, but whatever. <laughs> um, but it's really radical because usually when you talk about, like, occult orders and occult groups, there's, like, this really stringent hierarchy and it's all very political and clusterfuckery and 
just unhealthy and toxic. And then in addition to that, like the, the, the thousands of dollars and fees and foolishness. And that is not at all what the Coria is about. Mm. Um, the, the Coria is open to anybody who wants to put in the work, really. Mm. And that was really revolutionary and spoke to me from an operative perspective too. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Alexis. I really appreciated it. Thank you for having me here and for, you know, providing this platform for so many amazing voices. And I'm touched and honored that you considered me to be worthy of being a part. So thank you. (laughs) Well, that was educational and full and intellectually exciting and spiritually expanding so much so that I feel like I would like to debrief. So please welcome back to the podcast, my husband, Ruben Anderson, everybody. Hello again. <laughs> I, I've gotten really good feedback on the Rubination segment. Uh-huh. I, I'm not at all surprised. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, what are your thoughts so far on the uh, conversation that I had with Alexis? Uh, that, yes, that was an amazing conversation. I have also been Facebook friends with Alexis for a while now, and I was not at all expecting where that conversation went really? based on what I've seen on her Facebook. Oh. You know, so that was, uh, <laughs> that was amazing. Hmm. Um, I also really enjoyed a little uh, bit of smug schadenfreude in our relationship here. Why? <laughs> <laughs> because there was a time... Carmen Spagnola, when you would get kind of, you would express your uh, exhaustion with my Facebook because I was uh, sharing all sorts of um, meaningful and political things and you were using it more for socializing and especially for marketing at that time. Yeah, I quite specifically told you that Facebook is not the place to have important conversations. Mm -hmm. I specifically, not only did I say that, I said it in a frustrated kind of way. I was irritated that you were fighting the stupid on Facebook all the time mm-hmm. and um, and then kind of venting at me about it. Yeah. It was like, you're not even supposed to be talking about meaningful things. It's, it's for cats and food pictures. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Yes, it's true. I've converted. <laughs> You've, you have converted big time. You're yeah. really, you're extremely political in your Facebook now. Well, um, mostly in a private group that I have, but somewhat on my personal page yes mm-hmm. anyway so there you go Two punches I'm, are pulled I'm, by carbon spaniel yeah and alexis is a great model of somebody who uh does not back down mm-hmm. from expressing herself fully on facebook mm-hmm. yes uh so yeah um back to alexis then. yeah <laughs> uh yeah so she <laughs> she described herself as a trans germanic heathen and that's where I was just like, what is pan-Germanic. going on? Uh, oh, sorry. Pan-Germanic human. You're yeah, right. She You're trans- not trans. <laughs> yeah. Pan-Germanic. Pan-Germanic that's human. That's different. Yeah. Um, so, the, yeah. So that was unexpected to me. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, it was for me, too. Yeah. I was like, oh, she's a witch. And then mm-hmm. she really drilled down and clarified that. And even even though I've put witchcraft in the show notes, etc., mm-hmm. she did specify she would identify more as a sorceress as well. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Pan, Pan-Germanic heathen. This is yeah. the first I've heard. I've read that before, but I've never heard anybody just kind of rattle it off mm-hmm. in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's interesting for uh, a few things. The biggest part, of course, is she describes herself as a multiracial black woman. Yep. And so worshiping the Norse gods is a little bit from left field. Yeah. Uh, but the... Something that I just found interesting in myself is that uh, I think in our culture, heathen kind of equals atheist. Like it's hmm. it's a yeah. it's like a Christian swear word, right? You know, so to actually hear someone describe themselves uh, spiritually as a heathen, it was just uh, of of course it makes sense if you think about it for even five or ten seconds. You're like, oh, right, of course. Uh, but I think even in myself who was definitely a lot closer to the heathen end of the scale than most people, I found it, 
unexpected because, like I say, I think it's usually treated as just sort of a, a Christian swear word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was that was very interesting. Okay, so when you guys started talking, the big thing I was waiting for was a discussion of cultural appropriation, and it's because she's like, I worship the Norse gods. Yeah. And, yeah. And I'm a black I, woman from the yeah. south, and I worship yeah. the uh, Norse gods from the north. Yeah. So could you hear me salivating as she was talking? I was like, I cannot wait to ask her about how about cultural appropriation. No, I couldn't because I actually thought you were just gonna gloss it over like there was there was I I wrote down a note because it didn't seem like it was going to come up oh no I was just fishing it out I was like tell (laughs) me more (laughs) tell me more I found that very fascinating I was quite uh pleased with her answers how did you feel about it uh well I'll get to that but (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah so I was very pleased that you did uh you did bring it out um I thought that she described I think she described the um, the northern heathenism, but as well she described uh, some of more the Caribbean or African influenced religions, mm-hmm. spirituality, spiritual practices, uh, as being clan focused and lineage focused. Um, hmm. I remember I'd have to listen again. I I thought she was talking about the Nordic mm-hmm. when she said. Um, clan focus but lineage definitely came up Mm -hmm. several times yeah um so that's the part that i felt was kind of uh unexplored in your conversation that i'd really like to actually have her come back on and talk more about it okay Uh, so you guys talked about the sort of the power dynamic present in cultural appropriation um and how you know, generally, uh, well, maybe you should describe the cultural appropriation, like the power dynamic aspect. Well, what part are you unclear on? Uh, no, I, I was just going to stop talking for a second. Oh, like okay. Oh, and give me the mic. Yeah, that's oh, right. thank you. Well, uh, if you're asking me to define cultural appropriation, then I would say it's when a dominant culture uh, lifts from a, a living culture their spiritual practices and applies it themselves. So anybody, for instance, in so many well-intentioned white lady sisterhoods will start with smudging and they'll say, oh, you know, the medicine wheel this and medicine wheel that. But like, A, they can't ascribe that to any particular nation. B, in many cases, they don't know uh, where that sage is from or what nation sage is particularly sacred to, or even if it's appropriate. Now, and that said, it isn't just settlers. I've been to things here uh, in Victoria and Vancouver in BC where First Nations folks are leading it and they will smudge, which is not a a First Nations tradition of this area. Mm. You know, they would brush with cedar or they would do water, but sage smudging is not universally a First Nations um, practice. So, as um, Alexis was saying, even as a multiracial black woman, she can appropriate from living cultures in the same way we can. I, I have witnessed that personally. Mm-hmm. I've seen and, well, that. and she specified she can appropriate from African cultures. Yes. Which mm-hmm. I thought was a very uh, nice, fine point mm-hmm. to put on yeah, the conversation. Sure. Yeah. That was super interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay, thank you for talking about that. The the living and the dominant were two parts that I wanted to pull out. I do want to talk about lineage some more and smudging some more as well. But the, the living and the dominant were two parts that I would love to have her uh, talk more about. Um, and I think, it, I, I guess it's... I find it really interesting, especially as like, so you just went to the, uh, the where your keys workshop where you're talking about trying to draw almost dead languages Mm -hmm. back into the world, back into the living. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I know that there are, um, Northern spiritual practices where very few people (laughs) are Mm -hmm. trying to draw their traditions back into the world Mm -hmm. um so i feel like that line of living and dead Mm -hmm. is a little fuzzy yeah Um, i would agree with that yeah and then the dominant culture i i think is also very interesting because um 
I think if we just say, you know, generally white, generally English speaking, generally industrializing, generally colonizing people are the dominant culture, then it's pretty easy to say, well, then Iceland is full of people of the dominant culture because they're white and it's kind of an industrial society and bloody, bloody, blah. blah, blah. Um, but in Iceland, they're uh, worshipping the fairies, I believe, is recognized by the government. Mm -hmm. So that's way different than people who are doing like fairy art here in Victoria, BC. Right. You know, like, so this is a, a pretty minority spirituality practiced by people that I think it's not fair to say their religion has a real dominant foothold. Like, this isn't white Protestantism. Okay, but what's your... what? what so where are you going with this? I'm, I'm just... I'm failing to see the... So I, I just... I, I thought when we're talking about things like Norse gods or very minor religions like fairies or elves, um, that saying they are part of a dominant culture and so they can't be appropriated is also maybe a little dicey. Hmm. So I'm going to push back on you about that because of white colonialism and white supremacy. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm i not totally with you on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think if you have a... So white supremacy is so um, insidious and pervasive that even within um, minor religions that spring up out of white supremacy they will have an inherentness to them or they i shouldn't say they spring out of white supremacy but they are um living within white supremacist culture which they are global north global south so uh yeah i'm i i they're still dominant it may be a niche religion within that dominant culture but mm. it's still very much um there there's like no danger that anyone's gonna go lynch the fairy worshippers yeah. right so, yeah 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 and and there's no um pressing danger that uh, a bunch of people from tropical continents are going to swarm iceland and uh, totally dilute the fairy worship that's right spirituality yeah um but n nonetheless i still think that there's some tension in there in that you know, when you talk about, say, Iceland, then it's been settled for, I don't know, a thousand years or something like that before there would have been significant knowledge of other races, period, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and so. But in the world today, yeah, in the white world is today. supreme. So Absolutely. I think we have to deal with the facts on the ground, not the, but there could be some alternate situation in which it's like, yeah, the facts on the ground are, they're not at risk, though. I'll have to uh, uh, invite some fae folk on right. and uh, some that are particularly radical and uh, want to talk politics. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the facts on the ground is that they are at risk. The facts on the ground is they that they are the... at risk within white culture, but mm -hmm. they are not at risk from being um, diluted. Yeah, this or... is no Cinco de Mayo. Yeah, exactly. Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo. See, I, I can't even do that effectively. Right. So, okay. So yeah. So I, I found that. I thought those two tensions of the, the livingness and the dominantness of especially these northern religions, like the, who do we know is worshipping Tor these days? Yeah. So I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, then on lineage, so she mentioned this uh, clan-focused and lineage-focused. And I found that super interesting, and I'd love to hear her expand on that some more. So and the lineage focus, she mentions this. Uh, but then she's also just talking about how she has zero lineage to these Norse gods. Mm -hmm. And yet, nonetheless, she's finding a meaningful place. Yeah. And well, so, and I find that talk uh, more, interesting Alexis. because of the um, <laughs> genealogy work, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. As you know, I've been trying so hard to figure out which of the seemingly teeming masses of Isabella Mackenzie's <laughs> born in 1880 in Scotland are my great, great, great grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, and so trying to reclaim lineage is um, very meaningful, but ultimately, uh, you know, I think there's a, a, a 
profound sense of loss and grief that comes with it because you just can't reclaim things once they're lost. Mm -hmm. And so then all you're left with is what feels meaningful and how can you create intimacy and relationship with that lineage in a respectful way, Mm -hmm. in a good way. And so the thing that I found so interesting about it is that you and I have made some lineage choices. Uh, and I'm going to really, it's back to smudging. So uh, this was uh, uh, our our Facebook friend, Juliana, who hopefully someday we'll get to meet. I hear she's going to be on your podcast soon. Yep. Um, said, you know, taught us that Europeans of X extraction used to smug with, used to smudge with mugwort, mm-hmm. not sage. Right. And it was just kind of like, <laughs> blew my mind, right? Mm-hmm. So of course... Almost every culture must have had a smoke purification ritual. And so my people, wherever they came from, would have had a smoke purification ritual. And so we have been using mugwort Mm -hmm. as this sort of European smudge. Um, And sometimes I put lavender from our own garden. From our own garden. It feels, I don't know. Yeah, I think we can do that. Because that's what people would have done, right? That's right. It's, it's like, it, you might almost see the plant as being sort of the, the fossilization of practice, mm. um, where it's it, it almost becomes commercialized. It's like, no, no, you have to use this plant for your smoke purification ritual, as opposed to... Where are you? Yeah, mm-hmm. what is nearby that you can make smoke, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for your purification ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you and I have have taken sort of a lineage approach that in order to not be a to consciously try to unappropriate to consciously not try to appropriate to not be a bastard to not be a bastard <laughs> in order to not be white bastard taking sage smudging right we should try to find a smudge that is um closer to mm-hmm. our lineage that's right uh so so you and i have been you know as you said the genealogy work so it's like this investigation of lineage and then Alexis kind of just blows it off, right? <laughs> and so it's like, so Alexis, tell me more. What are mm. you, like, what are you thinking about? How does this make sense to you? What is going on? So That's so interesting so because I felt it made perfect sense, exactly what she mm-hmm. said. But you you, you, you seem dissatisfied. I'll, well, I'll no, see not, if we can get No, not dissatisfied, on. just okay. fascinated. Like, right. you know, there's a lot of ways that I've tried to make sense of what I've learned and... Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, you, you're in two different positions. So uh, here's the blessing and the curse of your white male privilege is you can't do what Alexis is mm-hmm. going to do. Mm-hmm. You just can't. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> you just have to listen to her and yeah. be kind of secretly envious. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much for your thoughts, for grappling did you have anything else? Um, I did. Uh, so I have this one little box on my sheet of notes here. Oh, that, goodness. Yeah. Uh, go, it's still on lineage. I, <laughs> I actually I actually think that uh, you should just, uh, listeners, you should just turn off the podcast now because that was the perfect ending and wrap up already. Uh, but, but you've got more. But this little box is actually kind of interesting. I also think listeners should just go like when Carmen and Ruben get into a fight. This is like the nice version. This is exactly what happens. Okay, let's wrap this up. Let's let's <laughs> yeah. wrap this up. And then Ruben's like, I still have some thoughts. But there's yeah, more. <laughs> but there's more. I feel like you haven't heard. Okay. Yeah. I have I'm listening. So <laughs> this is me with open yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see, but I'm sitting yeah, with an she's, open stance. She's leaning towards the microphone with her hands uh, palm open up. And... <laughs> I hear you and I'm listening. Go ahead, my love. <laughs> on lineage, on bloodline, the thing that popped into my head about lineage um, was it kind of made sense to me from epigenetics. So we have been thinking about epigenetics as being the transmittal of trauma. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the only way I think that we've ever talked about it. Mm-hmm. But what if it's also the transmittal of medicine, of medicine, mm-hmm. of the positive that my people, my lineage have transmitted things to me that aren't just trauma. Mm-hmm. But well, that are also absolutely. I I'm going to bring you up to speed here, love. In the spirituality scene, it's called ancestry recovery. Right. Yeah. And and with that, it's yeah. what is the medicine of my people, and mm-hmm. and sometimes we can have a 
intuitive sense or a visionary experience or a numinous experience where we suddenly have insight or knowledge or resonance. And then when we investigate it, we realize like, wow, I, I know a lot about that mm-hmm. animal, herb, place. You know, I, 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 I do, I, I do believe that we carry the knowledge of our medicine in us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that feel complete for you? That's all for me. Okay. <laughs> So what I heard you say is, no, I just, uh, I think the part you've missed is, <laughs> yeah, here's what I need to, okay, enough of that. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for being on the show. Always a pleasure. Yes, it is. All right. Uh, just before we wrap up, well, what I should say is that, uh, Alexis gave a whole list of books and teachers, which I have linked to in mm-hmm. the show notes on my website. And just before we wrap up, here, why don't you choose who we're going to say hello to? The ones that are crossed out are not the ones we're going to say hello to. We said hello to them already. Uh, well, I am going to pick Sweden then. Speaking of <laughs> oh. lineage. Oh, Hello, Anderson. Sweden. That's right. Andersson, the Swedish, not Andersen, the Danish. Mm-hmm. Though in looking through my genealogy, I do have a Danish line and a... Uh, but we're focused and on... And a filthy this. Norwegian line. <laughs> what? <laughs> There's a lot of bad blood there. Thank you for listening. We actually have dear friends in Sweden. That's right. Thank you, Sweden. We should say hi to Anietta and Mm -hmm. Carl Greger Mm -hmm. and Louise. Mm -hmm. And Magnus and and all their kids. Okay. Magnus, who showed me one of the most amazing things I've yet to see in my life. And with that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Tell them what is it. No, I wasn't going to. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you, Magnus. Okay. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course. If you'd like to be notified when registration reopens in June 2017, hop onto my website and sign up for my newsletter. While you're there, you may be interested to know that I've posted the dates for my 2017 wilderness quests. It's you and me and Ruben. And a few other people. <laughs> and a few other people. <laughs> Probably some Actually, horses. Actually, Carl Greger from Sweden is coming. That would be wonderful. That's what a great wrap up. Yep. Get all the details at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. I'm always a little alarmed that you don't say .com at the end of that. <laughs> I think they'll figure it out. <laughs>